Years ago, before this church was here, there was another church and we attended that church. Every year they invited a man, his name was Jerry Benjamin, and he would come in for one week and he would teach one book of the Bible, a book of the Old Testament. There's just something about the Jews that are saved, they get it. And I enjoy listening to them. They just have an insight that I envy. Well, Jerry Benjamin, in one week, he came in and he taught the book of Daniel. I was especially interested in Daniel because I had taught through the book of Daniel. I had so much fun. It's, there's everything there, prophecy, the 70 weeks of Daniel, Neb and all his friends, and I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. But if you want to know how good a teacher I am, when I got done teaching, I asked my class the question. I says, what do you think? A guy stood up, he says, Gary, I know you had a lot of fun, but I didn't understand a single thing you said. <laughs> so, thank you, but let's find out. One of the things that Jerry Benjamin taught me that week as he's going through the book of Daniel, he was in an Eastern European country. He had his uh, briefcase full of notes prepared for that week. When he got to his room, he did not have his briefcase. I identify with that. I would have been, oh no, now what? He didn't cancel the conference. You know what he did? He took the book of Daniel, he took his pen, and all he did was underline every time it talked about God. That's all he did. And that week, I listened to that man, and I realized I had totally blown it. I had missed the whole point of the book of Daniel. The whole point of the book of Daniel is the Most High God. And so when I look at a book of the Bible, for instance, Genesis, I do the same thing. You turn to Genesis chapter 1, and what do you think about? You think of creation. Listen, diagram that sentence. You know what the subject of Genesis is? Elohim, three mighty ones. They created, they're good. It's all about him. Look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and let's start the adventure here, and let's see what Jesus said about this. On the road to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, he meets two disciples. It's not one of the 12, because he names one of them, and it's, it's Cleopas. He's talking to them, and he, look at verse 27. Well, we'll start at 25, so you get the context. And he said unto them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. That's where we're going today. We're going to the prophets. Isaiah is one of the major prophets. That's where we're headed, okay? They didn't get it. They knew about it. The, the Jews knew the Bible. They knew the Old Testament, but they missed something. What did they miss? Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament here, he explained to them the things concerning, what's the next word? Himself. In all the scriptures. Let's do that as we approach the book of Isaiah, let's look for him, okay? We're going to look at the first five chapters. He talked about sections. That's the introduction to this book. When we get done with the introduction of this book, we're going to see what Isaiah is all about. There's a problem, and God is reacting to this problem. Look for God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. And let's start looking for him and see what God wants to show us about himself. Let's read for a little bit 
and then we'll go start chopping it up. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again? Are you, as you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation. As overthrown by strangers, the daughter of Zion, and the daughter of Zion is a word for Jerusalem, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we'd be like Gomorrah. Here, the word of the Lord had stopped. Let's go back to the beginning here. The first thing you see is that the Lord is speaking. Look at verse 2. It says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. In the first five chapters, if you read through this, and you're going to do that this week for me, right? You're going to read the first five chapters, and next week you're going to know, okay? And if you want extra credit, read the end of the book of Deuteronomy, okay? That'll get you ready for next, next week, okay? First five chapters, the introduction, you're going to know what the book of Isaiah is about. One of the things you're going to notice, though, is that God himself is speaking, okay? Look at the personal pronouns. Look what he says. He says... In verse 2, he says, I have reared up. And then he said, they have rolled it against me. Look at verse 3. And it says, and my people. Look at verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Next word is I. Go down, he says, and I take no pleasure. Who's talking here? God himself is talking. Now, this is unusual. Most of the time when you read the Bible, you are listening to probably Paul, Peter, Moses, some of the apostles as they, or as they write. Here, this is different. This is unusual. God himself is speaking. And look at chapter 5. Isaiah gets two verses. As he starts the, the chapter, he, he says, let me now sing a, a song for my well-beloved. He gets two verses and then... Look what happens. Here come the personal pronouns again in verse 3. Me, my, verse 4, I, and I. He gives Isaiah two verses, and then he himself sings the song. God himself is speaking. What is going on? Something is going on. This is so important. That is what is happening in this book that he says, okay, guys, I got this one. Look at the audience. Look who he's speaking to. He is speaking to, what does it say? The heavens and hear, O earth. Verse 2, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Those 
words. Listen and hear are the imperative. That means he went, listen up! He's trying to get your attention here. This is really, really important. And the call is for all hands on deck. He's not just talking to us. He's not just talking to men. He's talking to angels. He's talking to demons. And he's talking to all creation. You go through this book and read this book. You're going to be, he talks to the spirits of the dead. He talks to the trees. He talks to the animals. Everything, what goes on in this book affects all of creation. And he wants everybody and everything he ever made to listen to what he's got to say. Something important is happening here. He wants everybody's attention. And listen, when he says listen up, he says no option. You have to listen to this, okay? Now, one of the things you want to know when you're going through here, I had a friend tell me I was working for him. He was a contractor. He knew I was a Christian. He goes, oh, God, why do you? His God is just something out there, and I don't know what he is. That's sad. God is a person. He feels, he thinks, and listen, you're going to see as you go through this book, emotions coming from God. When you got done reading this and you see what's happening, you need to go back and read it again. And this time, realize you're talking to an emotional God. He's hurting. He's sad. He's angry. Listen to his voice as you read through this. His name. He gives his personal name when he starts. The Lord. That word Lord is... Let me see if I can say this right. Tetragrammaton. You know what it is? Originally, it was Y-H-W-H, okay? There was no, con there was no vowels. It was just consonants. <clears throat> when the Latin translation came along, they didn't have a Y, so they put in a J. So Yahweh became Jehovah. Then they put the vowels of Adonai and Elohim, they added that in, and so eventually it became Jehovah. But... If you were to read the translation of this, Jehovah's not here, it's Adonai. The reason they did that is because of Leviticus 24.6, which says, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. They thought that the name of God was to be taken so seriously that even to write it, they were afraid of being condemned. And so what they did is they would set their pens down and they refused to write it. That's how serious this name is. <clears throat> then they would plug in Adonai. The word comes from a word that means I am. You remember when Moses was talking to uh, God at the burning bush, and he asked God, and he says, they're going to ask me what your name is. You want me to go to resent, uh, represent you to Egypt and to your people? Uh, they're going to ask, who are you and what's your name? What was his answer? I am that I am. And that's what this name means. The word means I am. And it has the idea that I exist and everything else exists because of me. So there's something personal here. There's something important here. And he wants everybody to listen. Next, look what he says. He identifies himself as a father. <clears throat> he says... 
sons I have reared up, and then go down to verse 4, halfway through uh, the verse, he says, sons again. So he identifies himself as a father. This one is my favorite. This actually is a reason I came to the book of Isaiah. I was looking for the father. For personal reasons, I wanted to know who God the Father was. Jesus Christ is the focal point throughout the Bible, especially New Testament, okay? That's good. And everything I say does not take away from that. He is supposed to be our focal point, okay? But I was looking for something a little bit. The Father is a little bit behind the scenes, and I was looking for him. And what I found was awesome. The Father impresses me. And what I found was a father who loves his son, Jesus Christ. The son loves his father with a love that is just unmatched. This love story is the greatest love story in all the Bible. The love between the father and the son, it explains everything. Is there anybody here and you have ever wondered what we're all doing here? Why were we created? And you hear people say, well, God was lonely. No, God wasn't lonely. There was nothing wrong with God. God didn't need anything. The issue was the father loved the son and wanted to give a love gift to his son. That's what we are here for. I look at what the father did to do this. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how a father sends a son to the cross suffers like he does, and turns his back on him. You say, well, that's hard. No, behind it is the greatest love I've ever seen. He did something super hard. And the son did something very, very hard. He is the strongest, toughest man I know. I don't know how he did it. But he did it because the father asked him, son, get off that throne, go and become a slave, and suffer so that you can win and redeem a people to yourself. And you know what we are, the redeemed? In our glorified state, we are a great love gift from the Father to his Son. That's what we're all about, okay? You want an explanation for all of history and for all that's going on? Start with the Father and his love for the Son. You're going to start to understand it. There's something else here, too. When I saw the Father, things start changing in the way I think and the way I feel. Anybody here, you don't have a father? Or maybe you have a father, but, you know, really you don't? You know what the Bible says the father is to you? He is a father to the fatherless. God has you in a special category. He will be a father to you. Something else. When I saw this, it changed the way I pray. Jesus drew on this in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, ask, seek, knock. He's trying to convince you guys you want to pray. And then what does he do to try to convince you to pray? He says, look at the Father. Look at the Father. If your earthly fathers who aren't saved give good gifts to your sons, how will a good father, your heavenly father, Give to you. You know what? It changed the way I pray. There are some times when I go to God and I really want something. You know what I tell him? Respectfully, listen, respectfully, I remind God that he is my father. 
you know you adopted me? Do you know that you placed me in Jesus Christ and that I am your son and you see me the same way that you see Jesus Christ? And then I look at the love that he has for his son, Jesus. He loves me too. And when I need something, he's going to treat me like that. You know what? It's, it's easy now to pray, knowing that there is a father who loves me and he will give me good things. I pray more. I, tr- I pray differently now because I see him as a father. Here, though, the issue is... He is a father to Israel. He says, sons I have, here, I have reared up. When, then in Hosea 11, he mentions this again, and this is what he says. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the reason he is bringing up the fact that he's a father here is because you need to remember that when you see what's happening, okay? Listen, what's about to happen to this nation, who I consider sons, listen, they're family. And families in a different category. I gave them things that I didn't give anybody else. I gave them the Shekinah glory. I gave them the law. I gave them my presence. I protected them. I put up with things I wouldn't put up with anybody else. This is my family, okay? World, are you, are you paying attention? Listen, I'm dealing with my family here. I am a father, and I love these people. Listen, when you love somebody greatly... It gives the potential for what? To get hurt greatly. Remember that. This is personal, and this is important to God. The third thing, look at verse 4. It says they have despised who? The Holy One of Israel. God was to be treated differently. A lot of people, I've heard people talk about the word holy and be honest with you, I don't have a really good definition, but I do know that at the basic meaning of the word holy is the word different. Start there, okay? Different. God was to be treated differently. He was to be treated specially. He was to be put in a different category than everybody else. This is important in the book of Isaiah, okay? Especially when we get to chapter 6 and we look for answers, he starts here. This is where he starts. By the way, something very Very important. Do you want to know what the truth is? Do you want to know, okay, is this guy right? Is this guy wrong? How do I know what the truth is? What does Proverbs 1, 7 say? The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge later is what? The fear of the Lord. When you meet this Holy One of Israel, you will learn to fear Him. This is where we start. It's a good place to start if we want to know the truth, okay? Isaiah calls God Holy One 25 times in this book. Next one, look at verse 9. Isaiah gives this definition of God. It says, unless the Lord of hosts. This title for God in the book of Isaiah is given 60 times. Okay, And it's especially appropriate when you realize what is about to happen to Israel. The word means commander of armies. Now look back, before Isaiah, look back into the history of Isaiah. There is a long, long record of what? Victory after victory after victory. Start with when they became a nation and they come out of Egypt. What's the first thing that happens? They go to the Red Sea and what happens? 
the Lord of hosts shows up, wipes them all out, okay? Then you get to Jericho, the walls come down. Then you get to Ai. Then you get in and you see all these city governments are defeated. Then you have an example, for instance, of David and Goliath. There were giants in the land. They were stronger. Lord of hosts fought for them and defeated them. If you want to have fun and you want to see this Lord of hosts and how he operates, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's a fun story. Jehoshaphat is sitting there. The Moab and the Ammonites, they show up. They have a huge army. Jehoshaphat gets scared. He calls for a national fast. God sends a prophet. And what does the prophet tell the king of Judah? Battle's not yours. The battle is the, the Lord's. Who's he talking about? He's talking about this person right here. He's talking about the Lord of hosts, the commander of armies. What happens? They lead with the choir, singing praises. And who shows up? God shows up. All enemy dead, no casualties. That's the way the Lord of hosts works. Now, remember that when you see what's happening in Isaiah, because something's about to happen, and where is he? Where is the Lord of hosts? Okay? Number five, God is a receiver of worship. If you look at verses 11 through 15, they're all here are all the ways that Israel was supposed to worship God. It is a list of all the things that wouldn't happen in the temple, okay? We'll go through that list when we, later on when we go through this. He asked, for instance, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? There were all different ways of worshiping God. Now, Israel was designed, their whole society was designed around worship. That's what they were. They were a worshiping machine, okay? <clears throat> what does it mean to worship? Worship, the word means to bow down. It means to stand before somebody, come into the presence of somebody who is more important than you. And in the past, what do they do? If you come into the presence of a king or a priest or somebody that, you know, was dignified, you would bow down and you would kiss their ring of their hand. That's what Psalm 2 is talking about when it says, hey, all you rulers of the world and all you religious leaders in Psalm 2, he says, worship the Lord and kiss the son. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about you kneel down and you kiss the hand or the ring of Jesus Christ because he is more important than you. Worship is designed to do that, okay? They were supposed to worship God, and nobody, nobody knew better than the Jews on how to do that and how important it was. Second thing is, if you read on, he says, God is a defender of the orphan and widow, and he says it twice here in the, in close together. He says in verses, look at verse 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Okay? He wanted, and let's use the word justice here. Now, the last two things, okay, worship and defend the widow in the order, organize that in your mind by doing this. All of the law can be broken down into two things. What are they? Love God and love each other, okay? All of the law can be summarized and broken down into those two commands. 
that is exactly what he is going on right here, okay? The first thing is to love God. Treat God right, okay? That's what he asked for here. I want you to worship me right. I want you to love me. I want you to treat me right. And then he next goes to treat each other right, love each other, okay? Those are the two things that he wants. Now, if you keep reading what he does, he then flips it and he repeats it. He says, you're not treating each other right. You're actually murdering each other. And then he says, instead of worshiping me, you're worshiping idols. So he repeats it and he flips it. But those are the two things that are issue here. When you go through and you read this book, this issue comes up over and over and over. Okay, you're going to talk about it. Yep, I'm going to talk about it again. He hates the way they worshiped. They worshiped idols. They did not treat God right, okay? Now, the seventh thing here, and we're almost done with this list, and it says in verses 16 through 20, and this is awesome. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your deeds from my sight, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is offering mercy. He is a judge trying to negotiate with an evil people, and he offers them blessings if they obey. He offers them and tells them they will get judgment if they refuse. There's one thing needed about God. He is patient. With Israel, he's been extremely patient. He has put up with so much for so long. But there's a limit. He is a God of mercy, but there is a day when that mercy will end. And there is a season that that mercy can be received. But listen, people. God, and he says it here, I've had enough, okay? But God, at this point, is still merciful. There's another thing here. It's kind of interesting to me. Last one, chapter 5. God is a farmer. Look at verse uh, chapter 5. God is a farmer. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it around. He planted it with a choicest vine. He built a tower. And then and it says he expected it to produce good grapes. Who is this vineyard? Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. He was farming Israel. And he expected them to produce good fruit, okay? Now, something's wrong, okay? That's what God is up to this point, but something is very, very wrong. Go back. <clears throat> it says that the Lord is speaking, but if you, I'm sorry, stay in verse chapter 5. Look at verse 24 before we go back. Look at verse 24. Remember it says that the Lord is speaking, 
Look at the end of verse 24. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. They don't care what God has to say. They don't care. There's something about that that just, it just says, it summarizes everything. God's word is held in high esteem. It's very important. Number two, it says that God is a father. Go back to verse two. He was a father, but he says, I reared up, brought them up. What did they do? They revolted against me. And then you know what he does? This is kind of funny. He calls his sons dumber than donkeys. Okay? That's something only a father can get away with. Okay? And then he doesn't just call them a name. He elaborates. He explains. They are really dumber than donkeys. Okay? These sons that he reared up have totally rejected everything that he tried to teach them. They are not. They do not reflect him. Now, listen. Parents... Uh, listen up. <laughs> you ever feel guilty? The kids didn't turn out the way they were supposed to? This is the second time that I know God is in the Bible. Is, is, remember Adam and Eve? Listen, God was a perfect God. They had a perfect world, and look what Adam and Eve did. You feeling guilty, Mom and Dad? Now, that's not an excuse for being a bad parent, okay? But here we go again. He reared him up, and listen, God was a good father. He was. He was a great father. He picked him up when they were nothing, and he gave them everything. He taught them well. And what he's doing here, it says, I discipline them. He's doing exactly what a father is supposed to do. He is carrying out the fatherly role. I discipline them. I could not discipline them anymore. And they still reject me. Okay? This is not a failure on the father, but there's a problem. They have totally rejected him as father. Okay? Now, If you were being totally ignored when you were speaking, how would you feel? It says here that God is angry. If you are a father or a mother, what does the psalm say or the proverb say? It says that a foolish son is what to the parents? He's grief. Are you beginning to feel what God feels here? He's angry and he's sad. Okay, third thing. It says that he was holy, but he has been despised by the Holy One. Despised means to disburn or discard. Later on in the book, it'll say they wanted nothing to do with him. Okay? God is feeling totally rejected. He's sad. He's angry. He's feeling rejection. And look at number four. It says in verses seven through nine, it says, Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields... Wait a minute, the Lord of hosts, isn't the Lord of hosts the one who defends Israel? He's not defending them. This period of time, we're going to look at when we get into chapter 7, we're going to see right away that what happens is Assyria has come down. The northern ten tribes are gone, wiped out. They come down and there's two tribes left. And I don't know what happens to Benjamin. By the time we get here, there's only Judah left. Okay, And what he's describing here is the king at that time buys Assyria off. There's supposed to be a peace treaty, but Assyria turns out to be not very good neighbors. Okay, And one of the things here is, is kind of rubbing their nose in it is, 
okay, you harvested and you planted all that crop, but who's eating the food? Not you, the Assyrians. That's how bad it is. Jerusalem is surrounded. Supposed to be peaceful uh, uh, neighbors, they're not, okay? They are being severely disciplined, okay? God, the Lord of hosts, is not defending them, okay? Also, not only is he not defending them, he will not defend them in the future. By the time you get to chapter 5, there's a progression. As you read through the first five chapters, notice this. We just read where there is an offer of mercy. At the end of chapter 5, that offer is withdrawn. There is no longer an offer of mercy. He doesn't talk. He whistles. Here comes Babylon. It's over. I'm done. The Lord of hosts will not defend him. And look at the description of the army that Babylon sends in. They're tough. Nothing's going to stop them. They don't get tired. And you're going to get wiped out. You're going to be destroyed. The Lord of hosts is gone. He's backing up. He's not defending them. God alone was to be worshipped. Look at verses 11 through 15. Look at what God says. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings. I take no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Your incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. And then look at this. Your hands are covered with blood. He was supposed to be worshipped. They were not worshipping him. You know what's interesting is when you read this, what's going on here is that Judah is reacting to God calling uh, you're dumber than donkeys. Okay? What they're doing is saying, listen, whoa, 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 whoa. Dad, I'm worshipping you. Okay? Listen, I'm religious. I'm doing it right. Come on now. I get some points for that. God says, I hate what you're doing. It means nothing to me. This is not what I told you to do. Okay? It is not a defense. They are not treating God right. Okay? Not only are they not treating God right, they are not treating each other right. Verses 21 and 23, it says, The faithful city, Jerusalem, it says, Now they're murderers, and they do not defend the orphan, nor do they listen to the woman's, the widow's plea. He wanted justice. He did not get it. The next thing, remember, he offered him salvation. Like I said, he's going to withdraw that. And then the last thing I said, God is a farmer. Verse 2 says it produced worthless ones, not good grapes. The farming of Israel produced bloodshed. And cries of distress is what it says. What's going on here? What is this book all about? God had chosen Israel to be his special people designed to represent him to the world. They left Egypt about 1446 B.C. You go about 860-some years to 605 B.C., and they are no longer a sovereign nation. Okay? 
they were supposed to influence the world. Instead of influencing the world, the world influenced them. Instead of getting the world to worship God, they are worshiping the world's gods. And it got so bad that they were even sacrificing their children to these false gods. In the end, those four kings that he worked for, Isaiah would watch Ahaz, Hezekiah would come along, but the next one, Manasseh, it got worse. He was even sacrificing his own children to Baal. They would take their own children down to the Valley Hinnom, down off to the side of Jerusalem. They would play the drums so you couldn't hear the children screaming as they threw them into the oven. That is what happened to Israel. That's how bad it got. And then Deuteronomy tells us that when they were sacrificing to these idols, who were they really sacrificing to? They were sacrificing to demons. And you're going to be surprised how often this comes up in the book of Isaiah. That's how bad it got. Instead of worshiping God, they're doing, it couldn't get much worse, or any worse than that. So, there is one other really important issue here. God has attached his reputation and his glory to these people. I want you to turn, please, to Psalm chapter 79. Look at Psalm 79, and this is interesting. Here is the biggest issue of all. Now listen, Christian. Not only this is, is this important to God, it should be very important to you. When you get up in the morning, and you get up uh, before the kids get up, and you have your time with God because there's no interruptions, and you pray, and you do do that, right? What's the first thing you pray for? Jesus taught you what to pray for. Number one, what was it? Hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? The number one concern of you, Christian, is you were built and designed to represent God. That's the most important thing to you. That's your purpose for being here. And what do you want? What do you pray for? You pray that God's name would be treated right in this world. That he would be seen as holy, as different, as something special. He's not like everybody else. He is to be treated with the most important value. That's what you're interested in. And so if you are like that, Christian, which is what you're supposed to be, you understand this. Look at Psalm chapter 79. What is the biggest issue here? You know what's funny is that the Jews, somebody after Babylon had came down, after they were judged, they finally figure it out because look what they're doing. This is what they say when Babylon comes down. Look at verse 9. Help, God! O oh God of our salvation, for why? Why should God, and they're appealing to God, and what's their basis for appealing to God to come help them now that they're captured? For the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Because why? Because the reputation of God is at stake. Listen to this. Why should the nation say, there it is right there, where is your God. That's the issue. All of the world is watching what God does with this nation. This was his people. His reputation is tied to these people. God put them on this planet to reflect God. My dad was uh, an infantryman in Vietnam, three tours in the 60s. He doesn't talk much about Vietnam, but he did tell one story. 
He says that one night he was on night patrol. He was a platoon leader. He went out and he took his platoon and he set up on a, in the dark. He put two here, two here, and he set up a perimeter. And he says he got to his hole, sat down, and the game plan that night was to watch, okay? Now, they were supposed to be watching for enemy activity, and then they were supposed to be able to react. As soon as he sat down, he says his radio went off, and he says immediately he knew it was too late. He knew what had happened, and he ran, but he says he knew there was nothing he could do about it, and he knew what happened. Somebody had lit a cigarette. Go out in the dark in a field and light a match. They didn't see the enemy. The enemy saw him, okay? That is what Israel was supposed to be in this world. They were supposed to be a light in a dark world, okay? Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Look in cha chapter 2 and look what Israel was supposed to be. Look at verse... Look at verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then in verses 2 through 4, you look at what it's supposed to be. Is it 10 o'clock? I'm out of time. <laughs> okay, I'm going to summarize and I'm going to let you go. We'll take off here next week. You see what the problem is. This is what the book of Isaiah is all about. God is about to shut down Israel. His reputation is tied to it. What's he going to do? Okay? Chapter 2 tells us, in those first four verses, read it. It's here. It's also in Malachi. That is what Israel was supposed to be. There is coming a day. There is coming a day when Jerusalem will be the light of the world. And you know what's going to happen? All the world is going to come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Israel will be the most important place on all the planet. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world, and the king will be there. And they will come, and why will they come? They will come to hear God's word. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. Judgment will take place. He'll render verdicts. And what will happen? The earth will be at peace. Listen, the United States right now is suffering a lot of political problems. You want to talk politics? I had a friend walk up to me and he says, you're going to cancel out my vote, aren't you? He knew I was a Christian. I says, maybe. He says, well, let's talk about this. You want to talk about abortion? This? I says, wait a minute. Let me tell you how I vote. I vote for the king. One thing is very, very clear. This world cannot solve its problems by itself. The only answer this world has is Jesus Christ coming back and being the king of kings. I am looking forward to that day. We'll take off there next week.